Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome back, everybody. All right, here we go. I have a rather lengthy article to read that is education-related, and it's very good. And, uh, you know, like most publications, I suppose, in particular academic publications, it's very rare that you're going to come across something that's brand new. And this subject that I'm going to read here from these two writing partners who are excellent scholars, and they, they do a great job focusing in on a lot of biases and, and why individuals, in, in particular in academia, have certain biases. And again, those different categories of people and who they are and why they think what they think and, and whatever else. But they have, a, a, again, a very long publishing history, these two. And uh, it, it's just very rare that you're going to come across something that's brand new. Again, this particular subject is not new, but it is one that is really, it's certainly to blame, I, I, I would say, regarding the current state of American education both at the K-12 level and with, within higher education. And it has to do, again, with their hiring practices, the group mentality, and what kind of person finds their way within these professions. And then, of course, what kinds of personalities within those people end up leading to policies or procedures or groupthink or whatever it may be. And as it turns out, Again, this shouldn't necessarily shock anyone, but the more likely that these universities and K-12 schools are to hire women and left-leaning women, the more likely you are to have groups of individuals who work within these environments continuously hire like-minded women. And then what you end up having is an environment where basically everyone is agreeing and everyone is believing the same things all of the time. If you compound that with the hiring of, say, beta males or weaker males who don't stand on firm ground regarding what they know to be true, are more likely to agree with those around them, in particular if they are in fact female, then that basically doesn't change the environment either. The environment remains the same. And again, if the majority of the individuals working within these environments are female, then you're going to have a group of individuals or a workplace environment that spends more time essentially teaching feelings and ideas and societal change as opposed to teaching about thinking. Or even more specific, I guess, focusing in specifically on the subject matter for which they are responsible for teaching. This is one of the reasons why within K-12 environments, for example, you have women who work with these in, within these environments, in particular administrators. And this, again, is this matters here. And it's not women bashing per se. I'm bringing up facts. Anybody can walk into a K-12 school you can look around and the vast majority are female. The same is true when it comes to administrators. There are more female administrators both at the K-12 level and university level than ever before. But they're all making the same decisions by and large. And these are not great decisions. Which again is why 
the females within a K-12 environment basically lean more toward the social-emotional learning stuff and the diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. Why is that? Because it has to do with feelings. It has to do with quote-unquote societal change. It has very little to do with facts. And, I might add, as you've heard me mention numerous times in the past, it has a great deal to do with game-playing and the playing of games, and rewards, and pat, you know, patting students on the head, and giving them a cookie, and things of that nature, rather than teaching them to be more strong-willed, open-minded, um, focus on literacy, and, and read, and investigate, and then arrive at hard conclusions. This is not, this is typically not what occurs. In particular, as these authors have even discovered, among liberal females. Now again, does that shock anybody listening to this? No. I mean, if you listen to this, you, that, that makes perfect sense. And as you've heard me say again, which I previously mentioned, it impacts the hiring practices of, of these institutions. They aren't hiring, quote-unquote, diversity. See, their, their definitions of diversity and the real definition of diversity are polar opposites. They are not the same. When, when a liberal says diversity, they mean someone who is just like them, but has maybe published something slightly different. And the grand prize for them, of course, would be someone who is of a different skin color than them, but has published exactly the same things that they have published or takes the exact ideological approach that they take. I mean, for them, that's, that's the golden egg, because then they can check all of those boxes and say, look, we're being diverse. Look at this person with a different skin color. I mean, it's, it's without a doubt the most bigoted thing in the world, but it, it happens all of the time, which again is why these environments tend to not hire alpha males. And the reason that they don't is because they can either look at that on a resume and what the person is actually researching, or even better yet, they can break it down into a phone interview or a Skype interview or a face-to-face -face interview, and then they start to get the idea that this individual knows what they're talking about, they're confident in what they're saying, and they can't have that. They want someone in the environment who is like putty. This, of course, is where the phrase team player came about. Are you a team player? Are you going to be a team player? That means, again, if the higher-ups are doing a particular thing, you'd better agree or else you're not a team player. That's really all that these environments are looking for, again, in particular ones that are dominated with females or beta males. Again, it is not an accident that these environments hire a great deal of those who are gay. This is a real thing. This happens both in higher education and at the K-12 level. Somebody might say, that's controversial. You can't say that. Sure I can. I just did. And it's true. This is what goes on within these environments. Again, it's not unusual, it's not necessarily new, but this article is fascinating, and I do want to read a great deal of this. It's long, but I'm going to bounce around a little bit and kind of hit on some of the major points. Okay, here are the authors. 
Corey Clark, female, and Bo Weingard, male. This was from just a couple of days ago, October, uh, October 8th. And this is published in Quillette on Quillette.com. The article is titled, Sex and the Academy. The inclusion of women in higher education is a great achievement for Western liberal societies. How is this changing academic culture? Again, the title and the subtitle pretty much give it away. And, and we know how it's changed because, again, for those of us that have been in the field of education or actually regardless of the profession these days, you can see how it's changed. It has, as they, of course, discovered, become more feelings-based as opposed to facts-based. Because, again, with feelings, you don't have to know anything. As you've heard me say here, that's the best part about having a feeling, is that it's just a feeling. It isn't a fact. And everybody has feelings, which means what if we all show up in the same environment and all we do is just teach feelings? It permanently keeps the instructor dumb because the instructor doesn't have to learn anything. They don't have to learn hard facts. So it continues here, and it says the following. It actually starts off with a quote from Dave Geary. It says, quote, Psychologists and other social scientists have been studying human sex differences for 100 years, and in recent decades have demonstrated that many of the differences that emerge in Western cultures are found in every other culture in which they have been studied. So again, not necessarily a new thing. It begins here. It says the following, quote, We are in the middle of a great social experiment. The sex ratios of many important institutions in the West are changing, and few institutions more dramatically illustrate this shift than academia. For cultures, academia was primarily a male-led institution although many universities in the United States began admitting women in the 1800s. Others did not begin to do so until the mid to late 1900s. Only in the past few decades have women started to outpace men at all levels. New bachelor's degrees, new graduate degrees, new faculty members, etc. Today, an institution once led and populated almost entirely by men is increasingly led and populated by women because men and women on average have different traits, tendencies, and priorities. This change in sex ratios has changed and will continue to change the nature of the modern university. I like how they say sex ratios and not gender. We need to get back to saying sex, not gender. What do you think? I think so. That word manipulation was done on purpose to again make everything fluid and make it like putty. So we can just change it to whatever we want. Uh, I'll never forget that. Sorry, sidebar here. I'll never forget that in graduate school when my, when my doctoral uh, advisor said that she was starting to read my dissertation and edit my dissertation and make suggestions. She was saying, you say sex throughout this, not gender. She said, we say gender. And I went, all right. Okay. Whatever you want. Anyway, it continues. Uh, the next title here, it says, Evidence for the Changing Sex Comp Composition of Academia. It says, In 1970, women received less than 10% of doctoral degrees awarded in the United States. This percentage has steadily increased, reach reaching partially with men around 2005. 
Today, the majority of new doctorates are earned by women. Similar patterns pertain elsewhere, including in Australia and many European countries, and they have a chart, rather thorough chart, from 1970 to 2020. And it was right around 2004, 2005 when it was dead even. And then it just shoots straight up with women uh, receiving more of these degrees. It says in 1987, less than a third of faculty at post-secondary institutions in the United States were women. Today, 50.7% are. In the coming years and decades, this percentage will like, is likely to grow. One way to predict future trends, albeit imperfectly, is to look at the percentage of men and women at different career stages. Older cohorts retire and are replaced by new ones. As of 2020, men made up about 63% of full professors, about 52% of associate professors, and about 45% of assistant professors. Among scholars employed at universities and four-year colleges in 2019 in science and engineering disciplines, faculty with 30 years of experience or more were about 25% female, and faculty with less than 10 years of experience were about 42% male. Across biological and life sciences, computer sciences, mathematical sciences, physical sciences, psychology, and social sciences, and engineering, the percentage of female faculty with less than 10 years of experience is 1.6 to 4.8 times higher than the percentage of female faculty within 30 years of experience or more. If current trends persist, women will gain increasing influence over the direction of the university. Again, you probably know my take on this because I alluded to it earlier, but how do you think that's working for everybody? <laughs> Seriously, how is it working? You see, the environment isn't attracting alpha males, is it? Working environments like this aren't. Which, what are you seeing then? And again, this isn't about women bashing. That's not what this is. It's picking up on personality differences among some, not all. And it just so happens, again, that these environments tend to hire liberal females, which tend to, again, be weaker, of course, than, say, a conservative female, who is more strong-willed, more decisive, etc., etc. Same thing with men, of course. Weaker men tend to be less strong-willed and more focused on feelings as opposed to, say, an alpha male, where the exact opposite is the case. It continued, God, I love this article. So, I mean, it's awesome. And it gets into more specific things, too, which is interesting. So definitely, you know, keep listening to this. It's interesting. It says, quote, the inclusion of women in higher education is a great achievement for Western liberal societies. W women are more supported and encouraged to pursue their intellectual interests, and it is clear that when they do, they excel. These societies now benefit from many contributions of women in the sciences and humanities. And, indeed, many have argued that the inclusion of women in formerly male-dominated fields has broadened the scope of inquiry and shed light on once mysterious or high-thereto-neglected phenomena. 
So how are these changes impacting academic culture, its priorities, policies, and norms, and shaping the direction of higher education and science? It is increasingly evident that men and women view the purpose of higher education and science differently, and that many emerging trends in academia can be attributed, at least in part, to the feminism of academic priorities. Evidence for Gender Differences in Academic Priorities. Here we go. Numerous surveys over the past five years have found large and consistent differences in the, pre in the preferences rather, and priorities of men and women, and these differences cohere with, the, with a broader pattern of evolved traits and tendencies. A 2017 YouGov survey of 2,300 U.S. adults on issues related to free speech and tolerance on college campuses, weighted to be nationally representative, found that 56% of men said that college should not protect students from offensive ideas, and 64% of women said that they should. When presented with a variety of controversial claims made by speakers, examples men are better at math, all white people are racist, po uh, police are justified at stopping African Americans at higher rates, a majority of men supported nine of the 11 speakers' right to speak on campus, and a majority of women opposed all 11 speakers' right to do so. It continues with these bullet points. It says 51% of men said colleges should not disinvite speakers if students threaten violence or threaten violent protest, whereas 67% of women said that they should. 58% of men opposed a confidential reporting system at colleges, which you've heard me mention, of course, which students could use to report offensive comments. 54% of women supported it. 63% of men thought controversial news stories in students' papers should not need administrators' approval before publication, whereas 51% of women thought they should. 65% of men believed that supporting the right to make an argument is not the same as endorsing it. 51% of women disagreed. In a 2001 survey of 3,772 academics and Ph.D. students at, the, at universities in the United States, Britain, and Canada, conducted by the Center for the Study of Partnerships and Ideology, found that 66 to 76% of men support intellectually foundational texts above diversity quotas on reading lists. 64, I'm sorry, 44 to 66% of women support diversity quotas above foundational texts. Female academics report a greater willingness than their male counterparts to support dismissal campaigns against a colleague who has conducted research that reached a controversial conclusion. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> wow. The research that I conducted that arrived at a logical conclusion. Wow, that's nuts. The vast majority of females uh, want those people fired. That's, that's, that's rich. In 2018, it 
continues. It says, Knight Foundation survey of 4,407 full-time college students on issues related to free expression on campuses in diversity and inclusion found that 71% of men reported that protecting free speech is more important than promoting an inclusive society, whereas 59% of women said promoting an inclusive society is more important than protecting free speech. And there you have it. It continues, it says 58% of men said it is never acceptable to shout down speakers or to try to prevent them from delivering their remarks, whereas 58% of women said it was sometimes or always acceptable. You see, this is what the feminism movement ushered in. This is what we have the Rockefellers to thank for. This right here. I am woman, hear me roar. All that stuff. It, it, it removes civility from the individual. It removes politeness. That's why, again, in a lot of these lectures that you'll maybe see or, or hear, either on YouTube or wherever, maybe you've even seen them in person, um, the beta males, the gays, and the, and the liberal women will snap their fingers or they'll hiss like a snake every single time that they disagree with the speaker because they've figured out and gotten in their stupid little groups and figured out that if they do that, then they won't get kicked out of the room as opposed to, again, standing up, shouting, holding up a sign, disrupting the room, whatever it is. They just hiss and snap their fingers as, as a way to express themselves when someone else is talking. For lack of simplicity here, or at the risk of being simplistic, it's just rude. And what we're really talking about are just rude people, whether they be women or not. These are just rude, uncivilized people. It continues. It says, a 2022 paper by... Rausch, if I'm saying that right, and colleagues in press at the Journal of Open Inquiry in Behavioral Sciences, or Behavioral Science, some details of which can be found here, there's a link, in which 574 undergraduates, graduates, and PhD students were asked to allocate 100 points toward five different academic priorities, found that men allocated more points toward academic freedom and advancing knowledge than women, and women allocated more points toward social justice and emotional well-being than men. Exactly. Exactly. Now let me dive into this just a little more specifically, because they're about to, but I, I kind of want to get this out of the way too. There are many common traits, again, among liberal women who work within these institutions. One of them, of course, is codependency. They love working together, whereas alpha males tend not to. And I'm going to put myself in this category. We tend to like to do things on our own. Again, whether it's publishing a paper or writing a book or building a bridge, I mean, whatever it may be, it's not that we don't listen to other individuals or aren't willing to. That's not it. It's just that we're not afraid to strike out on our own. And we're not afraid to hit a grand slam on our own either. 
And that's, again, me, when I was a school teacher, that's how I viewed it. I didn't go to other school teachers for help with something. If I did, it was to basically grab them by the lapels or the blouse or, you know, whatever, women in particular, and say, why are you not doing this particular thing with this student? You need to be doing this with this student. Again, whether it's treating them politely when they weren't being treated appropriately, the student, that is, um, not following up on discipline, you know, whatever it may be. It was about trying to get people to just do their jobs. But I never went to them for help with something as if to say, I don't know what to do, help me. That was never the case. I know how to find answers to problems, and I know how to find solutions to those problems, and I can figure that out on my own. So can a lot of women. Women can too, of course. But what, we're, what, what they, of course, have found, and it's not, again, it's not new. This has been researched at length for, for decades and decades. But what they're finding is, is that it tends to be liberal women, in particular women within these environments that are codependent on one another that they have to have their groups, they have to have their cliques. But the same is true with beta males. The same is true with weaker males. Weaker men tend to, again, associate with either groups of women who are codependent because the man is codependent too. And they share those behaviors where, again, the individual that walks the hallways by themselves, teaches their subject without needing any extra help, is in their classroom doing what they need to be doing, and then leaves the building, that person is deemed the threat. Because that's not the person who is commingling, so to speak, among the, uh, you know, the other participants or the other colleagues. Okay. It continues. It says a 2020 paper, quote, by, by Gerher, if, or G-E-H-E-R, GER, I don't know, and colleagues in which 140 academic faculty at colleges or universities in the United States completed the same point allocation task described above. I like this approach to a study, by the way. This is very good. You have all these points, now put them into these categories on what you think is important. This is well done. It said the following, it found that, quote, women allocated more points to social justice and emotional well-being than men, and consequently had fewer points to allocate to advancing knowledge, academic rigor, and academic freedom, although these latter three differences did not reach statistical significance. And then, of course, they have a chart. This is an excellent article. <laughs> this is exquisite. I'm, uh, I'm falling in love with this. It continues, it says, a 2021 paper by Zhang and colleagues that coded 1,193 abstracts and surveyed 2,587 European researchers across three disciplines found that male researchers were more likely to specify scientific progress, the achievement of knowledge as the aim of their research, Female researchers were more likely to specify societal progress, external usefulness, as the aim of their research. Female scholars were more likely than their female counterparts to report that creating a better society, quote-unquote, 
inspires their work and to place higher value on research that has benefited society. A 2021 survey one of us conducted with 468 psychology professors from over 100 top universities in the United States, preprint in progress, found that, quote, when asked whether scholars should be completely free to pursue research questions without fear of institutional punishment for their research conclusions, among men, the majority, 60.5% said yes, 37% said it's complicated, quote unquote, and 2.5% said no. Among women, the majority, 59.6%, said it's complicated, quote unquote, 39.8% said yes, and 0.6% said no. When asked whether scientists should prioritize truth, or social equity goals when two conflict, when the two conflict, rather, among men, the majority, 66.4% prioritized truth, 32.4% said it's complicated, and 1.3% prioritized social equity. Among women, the majority, 52.1% said it's complicated, quote unquote where 43% prioritize truth and 4.8% prioritize social equity. For the love of God. <laughs> wow. do, you, do we see here why this is doomed? Why it's doomed? It's not just the people, and it's not just the sex of the individual. It is quite literally the baggage. It's the baggage that they carry with them that destroys the institution. It allows them to, again, advance particular causes and ideologies and societal change initiatives. And that's where you get all these words, too. Ugh, it's awful. Collaboration. We need to collaborate. No, no. Collaboration is arguably one of the major causes for the destruction of American K-12 education, and I'll take it into another field, along with universities, of course, but it also has to do with politicians. I mean, you can take this analysis right here, and you can throw this directly into the political realm and females within, within, uh, within politics. Same thing. Same exact result. It continues here. It says, quote, The overall theme of these differences is that men are more committed than women to the pursuit of truth as the raison d'etre of science, while women are more committed to various moral goals such as equity, inclusion, and the protection of vulnerable groups. Consequently, men are more tolerant of controversial and potentially offensive scientific findings being pursued, disseminated, and discussed, and women are more willing to obstruct or suppress science perceived to be potentially harmful or offensive. That, of course, ladies and gentlemen, leads into a violation of ethics, and even a breaking of the law. That needs to be taken into consideration from a behavioral standpoint also, I think. It says, put more simply, quote, men are relatively more interested in advancing what is empirically correct 
and women are relatively more interested in advancing what is morally desirable. It says, of course, it is often difficult to know what information is empirically correct and what information is most likely to improve society. Therefore, such judgments will often be subjective and vulnerable to various biases and preferences, and a lack of ethics, I might add. Uh, it says, but in general, men appear to be less concerned about the potential moral consequences of empirical information than women. So when a scholar forwards a potentially true, but also potentially offensive claim or set of data, women will be more likely to strive to suppress it than men. I've got to tell you, my head right now is flooded with everything that's gone on after just reading that, with everything that's gone on over the last two years. Look at the mask wearing within academia, the shot pressure taking, you know, the pressure to take shots, basically, the inability to read directions, the inability to listen to reason. This came from women and men, both sexes, but also, of course, gay women and gay men. They were the ones, too, that crammed this down the throats of endless people. They would not listen to reason when it came to masks being harmful. It did not matter how many parents brought this up in school board meetings. It did not matter what evidence they brought to the table. Scientific evidence didn't even matter what medical doctor walked up to a microphone and spoke the truth to these people. They're more concerned with sticking to their guns than they are doing what is actually factually accurate. Because as they've even stated here, it has more to do with feelings than it does facts. And when we're, we are around groups of individuals that do that, we become, of course, well, we end up being downstream of all of that shit and all of that poor decision-making. And, of course, if you subject your children to these environments, well, you get what you had for the last two-plus years. Child abuse. Amazing. It continues. As is always the case when discussing group differences, these are advantages. It is important to emphasize that plenty of women champion academic freedom and resist the claim that scholars should, should suppress research for moral reasons. Plenty of men, meanwhile, have embraced the claim that moral concerns should play an explicit role in the scientific process. However, on average, men are more willing to suppress science for moral reasons, and men are more willing to allow offensive or even potentially harmful ideas to be shared. As the population of academia shifts from one dominated by men to one that is more balanced or disproportionately female, support for including moral and harm concerns into the scientific and publishing process is likely to increase, and support for academic freedom is likely to decline. Yes, that's exactly what we're seeing across the board. You've heard me on this show consistently read and reference the titles and abstracts of studies that are published in the American Educational Research Association's journal. Those are predominantly written, again, by women, liberals, and liberal men, some of which we can assume are probably gay. 
Again, I'm throwing that in because that's a variable. And if you listen to this show, you know that to be true. But that right there shows those titles and those abstracts that I've read here on this show show clearly that they don't have their priorities straight when it comes to what's really going on within the field. They're writing about their feelings and their their ideologies and their, um, what would you call it, uh, social justice agenda or politics or whatever it may be. You know, Trump's a racist. Um, men are racists. Uh, misogyny is the problem. I mean, th- this again, this is what they're writing about. And this, and I might add, it's getting published. It's getting published, which again means theoretically that the employer, so to speak, is allowing this to occur. If it's being published in journals, ladies and gentlemen, then the administrators who work within these quote-unquote, educational environments are going to hire that very kind of thing. And that's exactly what they're pointing out here. Uh, Let's see. Next paragraph says, which is the last of this particular subsection, it says, quote, this does not mean, of course, that women do not care about the truth or that men do not care about social justice. It means that men and women weigh the relative importance of these values differently. In many cases, this will be irrelevant. But many in those cases were truth and morality. Where truth and morality appear to conflict, men and women may adjudicate slightly differently. Because the social sciences are full of potentially morally relevant data about human nature and social disparities, this sex difference may, especially, may be especially relevant to the future development of disciplines like anthropology, psychology, sociology, and other fields that study humans closely. The next subtitle says, The Evolution of Sex Priorities and Preferences. Quote, These sex differences and preferences and priorities for academia are consistent with a broader pattern of sex differences that have been extensively discussed and debated in the scholarly literature. Although the causes of these differences remain Contested, we believe that evolutionary psychology, EP, provides the most fruitful framework for understanding them. According to EP, the ultimate source of many sex differences in sexual selection, or the share of evolutionary selective pressures related specifically to reproduction. Sexual selection is ultimately governed by the level of parental investment of each sex, and sex differences are a result of differences in parental investment. In most mammalian species, including humans, females invest relatively more in offspring, whereas males invest relatively more in mating opportunities. Although this fundamental disparity has likely produced psychological differences in numerous domains, mating, for example, two are especially relevant competition, and interests. Men compete more overtly than women for status. Well, I'd say in academics that's different because, again, the tables have turned, and now they might say this later, but women know that they're in the majority, which means now women are competing at a rate that they never have ever before for quote-unquote status of where they live or where they work, rather. Um, And if that means, again, stepping on men to get there, then if they have the 
if they have the collegial support, so to speak, or the same-sex support among their colleagues, then they're going to do it. Uh, let's see. It says they are... I'll start that over. It says men compete more over, more overtly than women for status. They are the larger and more physically aggressive sex, especially as the aggression becomes mortal. And they are more contest con contest oriented rather, vying against each other openly. Women on the other hand compete more co compete more covertly using relatively safer and more often subtle methods. Men also compete mortally against other groups of men and have therefore evolved traits and tendencies that encourage the creation and coordination of large coalitions with status hierarchies. Men on the other or women on the other hand prefer egalitarian social relations when in large groups and are not as predisposed as men to coordinating in large groups. Consequently, when women prioritize equally more than men. Perhaps the most dramatic way of expressing this suit of competition-related psychological differences is to describe men as warriors and women as warriors. Warriors, rather. <laughs> That's hilarious. A distinction Harvard's Joyce Benenson coined in the title of her book about human sex differences. Although potentially provocative, such a heuristic is not without value. Women evolved, as Anne Campbell memorably put it, to survive so they could nurture their vulnerable offspring. Thus, women are more likely to experience self-protective emotions, such as anxiety and fear, to be more harm and risk-averse, and to have more empathy and desire to protect the vulnerable. Men, on the other hand, are more likely to take risks and to endorse hierarchy and support for conflict. It then says men and women are reliably more interested in things and people, respectively. Relatedly, men have advantages in visio-spatial reasoning and mechanical reasoning and are more likely to desire system-oriented careers in engineering and programming than women. Women, on the other hand, have advantages in decoding nonverbal emotional cues and verbal fluency and are more likely to desire human-oriented careers in the arts and humanities. These differences and others like them are found in many cultures, arise early in development, and therefore likely explain the academic differences itemized above. That raises another quick point. It's not uncommon <clears throat> excuse me, for the American schoolteacher to know that they want to be a schoolteacher at a very early age. I knew that I could be a school teacher when I was a middle school student. I knew I was going to be a school teacher when I was a high school student. Because again, I looked around and I thought, look at all these weak men. There are weak men here. There are some strong, good women who are excellent school teachers, and then a lot of weak females that are being taken advantage of. But it was filled with weak men. And I, I am not, and I would not describe myself as a weak man. Therefore, I thought if these people can, can get hired and can get paid and can do this and they're doing it poorly, why can't I do it and do it better than they're doing it? And there you have it. In fact, if I had to venture to guess, again, I would say that the vast majority of individuals who have been in the field of education knew that they wanted to do it from a, from a very young age or knew that they could do it 
from a very young age. It continues, it says, a protective impulse is likely to be alarmed by data or theories that appear to threaten egalitarian norms or vulnerable groups and may produce an urge to suppress such scholarship since men are less empathetic and sensitive to potential harms and more interested in explaining things mechanically, they are less likely to be troubled by those data or theories and are more motivated to publish apparently provocative but potentially illuminating research. This same pattern holds for campus speakers, professors, and classroom instruction. Women on average Women are, on average, more sensitive to potential moral threats than men. And again, you can see how that would play a role in the hiring process. A female who is in charge is probably less likely to hire a strong male unless the motive for hiring them is so that that male ends up becoming an administrator of some kind. I, of course, later found out that that's why I was hired. It was one of the many reasons, but they were trying to groom me to be a male administrator, because the female principal of the school building who hired me at the time in, in this middle school where I first started working, um, they, had a, they had a habit of doing that. They believed that there needed to be more male administrators who were strong-willed individuals and alpha males, so to speak. I had no, I mean, that was true with me, I guess, but, but I didn't want to be an administrator. Turned out to be the, you know, that turned out to be the case. They, of course, found that out the hard way and they were disappointed, but, you know, it worked out in the end. Okay, anyway, I digress. It continues. It says, quote, from the perspective of EP, the sex ratio changes related, sex ratio related changes, sorry, in academia are neither arbitrary nor easily alterable. Men and women are psychologically different, on average, not because of patriarchy or social expectations, but because of evolved psychological mechanisms. It then says, EP is not without critics, of course, and some scholars argue that psychological sex differences are, in fact, almost exclusively caused by cultural expectations and narratives. Perhaps not coincidentally, men and women assess the plausibility of evolutionary claims differently. Among psychology professors, men are more likely than women to agree that the sexes evolved different psychological tendencies. But even if one is skeptical of the evolutionary framework, men and women do display different preferences and priorities. So these analyses remain relevant. The changing sex ratios in academia have therefore led, and will continue to lead, to predictable changes in the institution because men and women have slightly different traits and tendencies. Let me give you one quick example before I wrap up this article. There's not a ton, there's not a ton left. Um, the hiring of Ben Sass, the, the now former Senator Ben Sass, who just resigned in the middle of his term to become the president of the University of Florida. If you've ever listened to Ben Sass as a senator, this is not an alpha male. He's, he's just not. He's not a strong-willed male. He's, he's not willing to ruffle feathers. He's not willing to stand firm on things. He's blackmailed, probably. Uh, and he's putty in endless people's hands. And it's worth noting, of course, that Donald Trump sent out a tweet, or sorry, a truth post, rather, 
uh, about Ben Sass and basically said that the University of Florida would end up regretting it. Because, of course, Ben Sass has been a never-Trumper since the beginning of time, and he thinks that he's of higher moral standard than Donald Trump. And that's always been his approach. Donald Trump's just rude, and we can't listen to that kind of communication. No moral, civil human being communicates the way that Donald Trump does. So this holier-than-thou approach that Ben Sass takes is ludicrous because Ben Sass is weak. Of course, Donald Trump probably knows everything about Ben Sass, which means eventually Ben Sass's card is going to get pulled when he's the president of the University of Florida and his career will come to a screeching halt. But Ben Sass was hired probably again as a diversity hire because he's a former senator, number one. Number two, he's been apparently a college president before. At least he was, I guess, before becoming a senator. Um, and he's just, he's, he's putty. He's putty in people's hands. And even the right, politically, has weak individuals, as we know, that work within that particular group or that particular category. Of course, we call many of them rhinos, and there are lots of other names that are used, Republican in name only. But there you go. That's just kind of my two cents. So this isn't just a left-leaning thing. It also occurs on the right from a political standpoint also. Okay, the next subtitle, it says the following. Uh, let's see. Evidence for changes in academic priorities. Here we go. Academia has changed in various ways over the past few decades. By no means are all of these changes the direct or inevitable result of changing sex ratios. Nevertheless, some of the most drastic developments over the past 25 years share a common theme. They reflect the priorities of women. These include the following. The introduction of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI committees and offices on university campuses. For example, in 1999 at Ohio State University, in 2007 at SYNU, in 2016 at Amherst College, DEI programming and degrees, and a 34% increase in spending on DEI budgets from 2014 to 15 to 2018 to 2019. Again, keep in mind, this is also true for K-12 environments. It continues, it says also, the introduction of DEI commitment statements as a required part of the job application materials for faculty members, which are more common in more female-dominated social science jobs than in more male-dominated STEM jobs. It then says an increase over the past seven years in the number of academics targeted for sanction for their scholarship and teaching and often due to harm concerns about the content of their teaching or scholarship. It also says the, ad the addition of extra scientific moral concerns to the evaluation criteria for publications and retractions by journals such as Nature Human Behavior and nature communications. <clears throat> Excuse me. It then says the introduction of safe spaces and trigger warnings on college campuses. The next point says the requirement now made by large professional societies, such as the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, that presenters explain how their work advances equity and anti racism. 
and the evaluation of presentations based on their ability to achieve these goals. Anecdotally, this policy was instituted under a 13-member board, 11 of whom appeared to be women, and this policy received public pushback from at least two members, both of whom were men. And the last discovery says, growing concerns about coddling, quote-unquote, and free speech rights, quote-unquote, and increasing censorship and self-censorship on college campuses. It says these changes reflect rising prioritization of egalitarianism, potentially at the expense of merit-based evaluations of science, and a desire to minimize potential harms and psychological distress potentially at the expense of academic freedom. Again, I can't help but think of Dr. Robin McCutcheon in this moment. She herself experienced this. They wanted her entire department, or I would say many of them, wanted her gone. Not because of what, you know, not because of what she was writing about per se, but because they just didn't like her. And that right there, if if that's part of the hiring practices or the promotional practices of these individuals, clearly that's not an ethical environment. It's actually an illegal one. You don't get to fire people because you just don't like them or their views happen to be different than you. Of course, it happens all of the time and there are workarounds that, uh, that these HR departments and academic departments find in order to get rid of these people. But that right there is the approach that they take. Well, we just don't like them, so we don't want them here anymore. It has nothing to do with merit. It has to do with feelings. It continues, it says, Both priorities are consistent with women's evolved psychological preferences for egalitarianism and harm avoidance and stated higher prioritization of social justice and emotional well-being. In other words, These recent cultural trends in higher education are precisely what one would expect as women's representation in academia grows. One might argue that egalitarianism and psychological safety rarely come into conflict with academic freedom, pursuit of truth, and scientific rigor. And And so as these former two priorities rise in importance, the latter three will not be affected. This may often be true. In many applied settings, such as medicine, for example, the entire purpose of the rigorous pursuit of truth is to discover interventions that improve human well-being. So the truth goals and the moral goals are almost perfectly aligned. But in other more theoretical areas of inquiry, the benefits of accurate information are not readily apparent, but the potential dangers are obvious. These areas will likely be affected by sex-based priorities. I would add another element into that, of course, and it has to do with peer pressure. Who's more likely, in particular as we've noticed over the last two years at least, who is more likely to fall for the peer pressure, men or women? I mean, when you look at Anthony Fauci, do you say to yourself, there's an alpha male, there's a guy who knows how to build a bridge and dig a ditch? No. Then, of course, you have to take into account Deborah Burks as well. This is a ball-busting female where she's not willing to consider other avenues. She's just determined to tell people what she believes to be true. And then look at the nursing profession. 
the nursing profession is dominated by which sex. Again, it's not to say that they all went along with the tyranny over the last two years. They clearly didn't. Many nurses quit permanently. They left the profession outright. And we know this to be true. The same is, of course, true with male and female doctors as well. But it's a, I, I think it's a peer pressure thing also. Women are more likely to fall for peer pressure than, than males. Uh, let's see. It continues. It says, for example, research on psychological sex differences might appear to threaten egalitarianism and feminism because it suggests that some sex disparities are natural, quote unquote. It is easy to imagine that such research could be abused to undermine and restrict the rights of women, rights that are arduously won. So this research may seem to be more risky than it is useful. In such cases, women are more likely to be more cautious and have stronger desires to prevent such scholarship than men. Of course, this pattern of change in academia is also confounded by ideology. Women are generally more left-leaning than men. And equity and inclusion, quote-unquote, has become a major moral concern on the political left with which academia is increasingly dominated. In our own data, however, female sex continues to predict lower support for academic freedom and lower prioritization for truth after controlling for political allegiance. This brings up an old story I mentioned earlier. The last interview that I had was for a small school in North Georgia by the name of Dalton College. Dalton College, their teacher education department, was dominated by women. There were all women within this teacher education department except for maybe like two guys, one of which I think was gay. Um, one of the questions that was asked to me by the dean as I was teaching a group of teacher education students as a part of this interview process. She raised, the, in fact, the faculty members, many of them, were in the room watching me instruct these teacher education students. And as you might expect, I was doing it rather directly. The subject of my talk had to do with practices in the classroom from an instructional standpoint that are likely to cause conflict in the classroom. This is a direct classroom management thing, and it's a big deal because a lot of the instructional practices create confusion, anger, um, and disassociation from the subject for which the student is supposed to be learning simply because of the way that the instruction is being delivered by the person at the front of the room. After all of that presentation, the dean of the department raised her hand. She's a pleasant woman. I didn't have a problem with her, but this right here proves this point. She raised her hand and she asked me the following question. She said, why do you want to teach at Dalton College? She said, you used to drive up and down Interstate 75 all of the time and you passed Dalton College and you would pass schools that would have, you know, colleges and whatever, and, and you'd see the, the signs from the side of the road. She said, and you would wonder whether or not they had a teacher education department. She said, why Dalton College? Why, why, why do you want to teach here? That's a feelings question, as you might expect. 
what is it about us that makes us important to you? That, that was not my answer. My answer to her was very direct. I looked at her and I said, and I actually looked at the students when I said it, I said, you have teacher education students who want to be taught and I want to teach them. That was my answer. It wasn't, oh, I just love the wallpaper and the tchotchkes on the walls and there's just a sense of community. I didn't say any of that shit. I looked her right in the face and I said, you have students who need to be taught the truth and I can do that. Just like what you heard here. And then I said something like, I don't know if what I just brought up here has been brought up before to these students, but by the looks on their faces, I'm guessing maybe not. These are things that they need to consider because I want them to survive in this business because many are leaving the profession. And there are things, there are situations and scenarios that they need to consider. And you have students here and a nice size of students, and I want to teach them. That was generally my answer. And they were like, oh, okay, okay. I mean, they wanted a feelings answer, and I wasn't going to give them one because that, that, that's, not, that's not logical to me. Anywho, I digress. Okay, two more paragraphs, and then we're done, I promise. It says, quote, Nevertheless, these changes may be co-occurring to create positive feedback loops. To wit, W-I-T, desire for social equity encourages women to pursue academia. A changing sex composition affects the ideological tilt and intellectual priorities of academia, and these new priorities further attract women and others with left-wing political priorities. But regardless of whether the equity or the estrogen came first, the growing percentage of women is likely to continue to influence the priorities of science and higher education. And of course, what are we seeing now, ladies and gentlemen? It's collapsing. Because in crisis, it's not logic that many of these individuals that run these institutions are looking for. It isn't logic. It's not arriving at a singular factual answer. It's feelings and the sharing of feelings and the agreement of feelings. Final paragraph. It says, quote, The point here is not to lament or celebrate these changes, but simply to identify and try to understand them, and to note that they will lead to predictable downstream consequences, i.e., I'll add this in, the failure and collapse of American education as we know it. It says, quote, institutions are not independent of the people who populate them and altering the characteristics of those people will inevitably change them. Those who believe that the purpose, the lodestar of science, should be the pursuit of truth might find these trends worrisome. But it would be unethical and futile to attempt to roll back the enormous social gains women have made. The men's club, quote-unquote, era of academia is over. The new and more female-oriented era is here for the foreseeable future, unquote. And it's collapsing. It's collapsing. The introduction of everything again that you heard here, the feelings, the ideologies, the let's all agree all the time or else, consequences, 
insert consequences. Let's fire them. Let's make things up. Let's uh, publicly humiliate them. Let's lie about them, whatever. All of that is creating a degeneracy within these environments that is directly leading to its collapse, which we are physically and literally watching right now. So again, the authors, Corey Clark and Bo Weingartner. Corey Clark is a behavioral scientist with a PhD in social psychology. Bo Weingard is an associate editor at Quillette. He received his PhD in social psychology rather from Florida State University under the tutelage of Roy Baumeister. Okay. I want to make mention of this too because I think that this directly ties to that previous article just now is that the president of the American Teachers Union has apparently uh, decided to visit the Ukrainian border to quote-unquote assess the situation. I saw this a couple of days ago, and uh, even Cicely tossed this my way from New Mexico. Uh, This is from the TampaFreePress.com. And it says, American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingartner is at the border to assess the situation. No, silly, not the U.S. southern border, but rather the Ukrainian border to meet with students and teachers, according to a release on Sunday. Devastating Russian airstrikes ripped through Ukraine Monday, damaging infrastructure in eight regions of the country. Again. It directly relates to the article previously, because why is she there? The American Federation of Teachers, that union, is a criminal organization. She is a female. She is politicizing the entire situation and trying to tie it to education the best she possibly can. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with her ideology, has everything to do with her emotions, and of course, she's a tool. Because the people above her who control her and her presence in that organization simply called her and said, you're going to go to Ukraine, and then you're going to come back to the States, and we're going to have fundraising at the K-12 level, most certainly. For the Ukrainian victims, and all that money's going to get laundered, and ethics out the door, invite criminality in. You can see the actual moral decay right in front of your face here with this. It's beyond embarrassing, and it's beyond telling. Jab-related things, very quickly here. Uh, Here's a piece of audio from the EU Parliament, where member Rob Ruse asked a Pfizer representative at the hearing if the mRNA vaccine was tested on preventing transmission at the time of introduction. Listen to his question and her answer in three, two, one. If you don't get vaccinated, you're antisocial. This is what the Dutch Prime Minister and Health Minister told us. You don't get vaccinated just for yourself, but also for others. You do it for all of society. That's what I said. Today, this turned out to be 
complete nonsense. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport. The COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. Please watch the video until the end. U, mevrouw Small, heb ik de volgende vraag waar ik een duidelijk antwoord op wil. And I will speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. We had to really move at the speed of science. We didn't have time, we have to move. Okay, and there you go. Criminality, criminal behavior 101, emotion implementation 101. We just had to move fast, didn't we? Honestly, these criminals, we're going to need more rope, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to need more rope. Okay. As you heard me say in the last episode, a lot of uh, sporting event anomalies took place, we'll say. Although they're not anomalies, we know exactly what they are. These three stories come from the Gateway Pundit. I'm just going to read the headlines. Uh, let's see, the first one. 21-year-old York college soccer player found dead in his dorm room. On Saturday, a student-athlete at York College in Pennsylvania was found unresponsive in his room and was later pronounced dead, according to a statement released by the school. Andrew Rulick, a junior sport management major uh, from New Jersey, was found unresponsive in his residence hall at York College on October 8th. He was later announced dead. Hmm. Jabs. Pretty straightforward there, I think. The next one, and I'll hand it to the Gateway Pundit for keeping tabs on this. This is, this is good that they're doing this. I know there are lots of other pages and outlets that are doing the same that died suddenly on Facebook and, and other things, but they're keeping tabs on it too, which is pretty good. Uh, the next one, starting LSU Tigers offensive lineman hospitalized hours before kickoff game. On Friday night, one of the LSU Tigers players was taken to a hospital due to a medical emergency. Freshman offensive lineman Will Campbell was hospitalized during a walkthrough on Friday in preparation for the game against the Tennessee Volunteers. 
Campbell shared a photo from his hospital bed on his Instagram account. Appreciate all the prayers. I'll be back, quote unquote. Well, take it easy, pal, because with all those heart monitors on your chest, your, your playing days are over. Sorry to break it to you, but that's just the way it is. Uh, the next one. Also from the Gateway Pundit, Detroit Lions cornerback Savion Smith collapses, quote-unquote, on field during NFL game, and the father came out of the stands and rode in the ambulance with him off of the field. Uh, let's see. Looks like Twitter's taken down the video. Interesting. Why is that, Twitter? I'll tell you why. Those bastards, I'll tell you what. Okay, I saw the video. He's teeing up again on a wide receiver at the line of scrimmage. He comes up, he hits him with his hands, he hits him with his face mask, and then the wide receiver just kind of jukes and and tosses him to the side, and then he just collapses and falls to the ground. They said that it was a neck injury. The Detroit Lions came out and said he was taken to the hospital with a neck injury. Bullshit. It was not a neck injury. He didn't hit his head hard on the guy. There was no visible neck injury. The dude was in open space and just collapsed on the ground. Now, of course, they've deleted the video Twitter has. Why is that, do you think? What are you trying to hide? The fact that it clearly wasn't a neck injury? Again, you've heard me say this. They're going to keep doing this. They've got to cover this up. Even if three people fall simultaneously on the field of play at the exact same time, they're going to say something like, well, they must have all collided with one another on the field of play. Nonsense. These people took these shots. These shots are having dire consequences, as I've covered and as you know. This is not going to go away. It's just going to become more visibly obvious. I want to end with this. This is an audio from Dr. Roger Hodkinson. You've heard him before on this show. I believe he is British, but based out of uh, Canada, if memory serves. And in this audio clip, he is specifically speaking about the death toll and how this isn't going away and the long-term consequences. One of the big pieces of news over the last uh, couple of days has been um, a, um, a, a substack by a gentleman called uh, Peter uh, Halligan. Peter Halligan has been looking, uh, he, he's a most experienced analyst, ex in uh, financial industry, extremely used to looking at statistics and um, translating them into a summary statement. And this is the summary statement, and I hope your leaders are sitting down, holding themselves, because what I'm going to tell you intuitively sounds ridiculous. That's why it's so incredibly important that I say this. These numbers are best estimates at this point in time using government data for the global consequences of the clock shot in terms of death and morbidity, otherwise known as serious adverse events such as heart attack, strokes, pulmonary pulmonary emboli, etc. We've been focusing for good reason on North American statistics during the last two and a half years. 
But this man has extrapolated that into the total effect, negative effect of the clock shot. And these are the numbers. Deaths, global deaths, directly attributable to the vaccine, 20 million, two zero million deaths due to the clot shot. And two billion, big B, two billion serious adverse reactions of the type I described. Now these numbers are beyond staggering. They, to, to contrast that with history, um, vaccines have typically been pulled from the market when the last one, the, the birth flu vaccine, was pulled with only 35, three, five deaths. I hope people can appreciate the scale of what is going on here. An unimaginable carnage, which isn't over, because that number, first of all, is the current estimate. It does not include future deaths of a similar type, which will be cumulative on top of that. It does not include stillbirths. It does not include those avoidable deaths due to having had a one-disease healthcare system for two and a half years with people not being treated or investigated for cancer or treated for cancer, for example. Those numbers are not included. The numbers from the lockdowns, the suicides, and not included. And also not included are the future deaths that we're anticipating from a rapid increase in the rate of cancer uh, presentations and uh, fatal infections because of immune suppression induced by the clot shot. Those factors are in addition to those jaw-dropping numbers that I just mentioned. I would add just one more and that's flu shots and other shots. So I would categorize, me personally, those shots as being a secondary poisoning that would exist on top of the current quote-unquote COVID shots. Because as we know, the more you jab yourself with anything after you've received a COVID shot, the more likely you are to suffer severe health consequences, including death. So that's a completely separate category that, of course, would lead to an increase in numbers. And as we're hearing, they're pushing the flu shots super hard right now and are going to continue to do so. And as, again, you've heard me say and play the audio on this show, you can get them both in the exact same visit. You can get your COVID jab and your flu jab all at the exact same time. Not to mention the mRNA being introduced into ongoing and future flu shots. As depressing as this is, and as real as this is, and life-altering as this is for all of us, there is a silver lining in this, which is that future generations will see and hear and read about and know what happened during this time, even if they look back and they say to themselves, I had no idea it was happening when I was actually living through it. But those of us now who know 
actually know what's going on. We are completely awake, but it's going to lead to a societal shift away from the pharmaceutical industry, the pharmakia, as it were. It's going to lead away from that. Quite literally, where it will be a joke if a person receives an injection of anything. That these people will be laughed at publicly. It's already happening. But as we know, there's lots of cognitive dissonance and there's individuals that are saying, whatever, it works because I jabbed myself with all this and I don't get sick. Well, give it time. Give it time. But we are winning. That's the, that's the thing that I want to emphasize. We're winning here. All of this, which, again, as I said in the last episode and in, in previous episodes, that would have normally been hidden in the shadows is now out for people to see. It is only the blind, the willingly blind, who are failing to actually pay attention to this. And as you've also heard me say, that's not a survivable characteristic. You can't turn your head away from being shot at on a constant basis. You have to pay attention to where the shooting is coming from. You have to turn and face it and then do whatever you have to do to avoid it or at least eliminate the so-called threat. The best part about this entire scenario is that avoiding the threat simply means not doing it. No participation is the easiest way to fight against this. Mass noncompliance. There's one last thing, too, that I'll mention here, and it was a, a video of a doctor that I saw on BitChute, and it was very well done, and I'll link it in the description below. But uh, he basically says, I need your help. He says, I need everybody to get out there and start yelling about these shots and that people need to stop taking them and to never take them. He said, look, I'm only one guy. I'm only one doctor. I can't treat all of these sick people and dying people from these shots. We all have to work together to stop this. So he's speaking up and speaking out about it, of course. It's practically illegal in the state of California to speak about it now, and you'll lose your medical license if not be prosecuted. Thank you, Satanist Gavin Newsom, for that. Um, but again, that doctor, although not unique in the message, is certainly correct. That we all have a role to play in this, and if that comes at the expense of people not talking to us anymore, then so be it. Hopefully, they don't talk to us and they remain alive. A day will come where they will thank us. It might be in this life or the next. Not that we need the thanks, but it will happen eventually. And again, we're winning. We're definitely winning. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you on Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.